Second Peter in your Bible this morning, chapter 1, Second Peter, chapter number 1. And as soon as you find it, stand with me as we read God's Word together, please. Second Timothy, or Second Peter, rather, chapter number 1. <clears throat> Let's begin the reading in verse number 19, Second Peter 1 and 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And especially I want to draw your attention to verse 19. We have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you would do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place." Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable to you and that you will speak through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning, I'm going to start a series of messages on the subject of prophecy. I'm going to call them Hope for the Future, the whole series. The message this morning today is an emphasis upon the importance of Bible prophecy. And when I get through, I hope I'll be able to demonstrate to you how very important this is. Most of the messages are going to be on Sunday night, but I'm going to sort of flip back and forth because I feel it very important that I uh, instruct the church once again in the importance of and the events regarding Bible prophecy. So we'll send you messages and, and, and notations, and, and you'll know when and what I'll be speaking upon the subjects. Next Sunday, I'm going to speak on whatever happened to the rapture. Whatever happened to the rapture. And I hope that you'll be here and that you will participate in these, that you'll bring maybe a little notepad and catch some notes and... Um, It's just so important, as the subject says today, the importance of Bible prophecy. Now, according to verse 19, prophecy is a sure thing. Do you see that in your Bible there? We have a more sure word of prophecy. He's talking about the certainty of biblical prophecies being fulfilled. If you read the whole context in the preceding verses, Peter said, I was one of three that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. I heard the voice of the Heavenly Father say, this is my beloved Son, hear ye Him. And he said, I was there when Jesus was transfigured. He was totally changed. His whole being was changed. He was glorified there on the top of that mountain. I heard God's voice, I saw his transformation, and I was an eyewitness to that most unusual account. But he said, 
we have something better than my eyewitness account. Now, that's the point I want you to get. We have something that's more sure than even an eyewitness account because we have the Word of God, a more sure prophecy. And then notice how he compares it. He says, prophecy is like a light shining in a dark place. And so you can envision that pretty easily, can't you? You're in a very, very dark space, and you take a flashlight or a candle, and suddenly it illumines the darkness. The darker it is, in fact, the brighter will be the light. And that's prophecy. And certainly I don't think anybody would contest today the fact that we live in pretty dark times, that our generation is facing something that's extremely dark. And prophecy is the bright light that we have to illumine these dark times. Take your Bible with me, if you will, and just for the sake of illustration, of course, keep your finger here if you want to, but go back to the beginning of the New Testament. If you go to the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, the break in between the Testaments, and then just hold it like I'm doing like this. Just, yeah, I, I just want you to see something for comparison. I want you to hold that, and I want you to compare it to the Old Testament Scripture. And you have about one-fourth of your Bible in your hand there that you've separated. Now, if you went through the entire Bible, more Scripture is devoted to prophecy than you have in your right hand. Over 25% of your Bible deals with prophetic themes, at least at the time it was written. When the Bible was written, more than 25% was prophetic. It had to do with future events that the Bible was foretelling. And so, you're holding there, when you hold the New Testament, not quite as much Scripture as is included throughout the whole canon of Scripture here. In other words, prophecy occupies a huge portion of your Bible. Your Bible is more than one-fourth prophetic. In fact, when I began to analyze my New Testament, for example, the second coming of Jesus Christ, prophetic events, is mentioned in every single one or by every single one of the New Testament writers. Every single author of the Scripture refers to the second coming of Christ and to future events. You have 27 books in your New Testament. 23 of the 27 books mention the second coming of Christ or related events. In fact, in the New Testament, there are 318 separate mentions of the Lord's return or related events, 318 times. Now, when I look at my Bible, it, the New Testament doesn't even, uh, it doesn't even require 318 pages. So that means that prophecy is mentioned more than once per page on average. It is one of the most frequently mentioned uh, topics and subjects anywhere in all of the Bible. Now, of the 318 mentions of the coming of the Lord in the Old Testament, uh, there's a lot of repetition. Several different authors refer to the same thing. 
But when you separate them out, there's 109 separate, specific, definite prophecies regarding the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That would mean then that about one in every 25 verses in the New Testament deals with a prophetic theme, a prophetic topic. You just absolutely cannot read the Bible and not see prophecy on virtually every page. In the Old Testament, it's even more frequent, and you wouldn't think so, but it is. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are 1,825 mentions of prophetic events. Now, they're not all about the second coming. For example, there are prophecies about the destruction of some city or some nation or uh, some specific person. But there are 1,825 mentions of future events in the, in the Old Testament. So you put all of those together, you can see over 25% of your Bible, over a fourth of the Scripture is devoted to the subject of prophecy. That's, more t- that's the most frequently mentioned uh, uh, topic in all of Scripture. In fact, there are more mentions regarding prophecy than there is salvation. Now, that doesn't seem right to us, does it? Because we put such a great emphasis on our salvation. But the second coming of Christ is mentioned more than the passages that deal with your personal salvation. It's incredible to me when I begin to think how, how frequently prophecy is emphasized in the Bible. Turn with me, if you will, to a very familiar passage of Scripture because it includes something we often don't think about, and that's in John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is arguably one of the most comforting passages that we have in our New Testament. And I don't know, hundreds of times, I guess now, I've read it at a funeral. It's the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, then believe also in me, he said. And then he goes further, and this is the emphasis at funerals for believers, of course. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. But then here's the part that we don't usually think about or connect. Connect the dots with the next phrase with what I've already said this morning. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, say it with me, the next phrase, I will come again. Jesus Christ, the one who down in verse 6 says, I am the truth. I am the truth, the way and the life. That one who claimed to be truth personified says, I will come again. Boy, that's, that's just wonderful to me. I just want to shout when I hit that passage right there. The one who is truth personified said, I'm coming back. And if there was only one promise in the Scripture, the second coming, and it was that one, that would be enough for me, wouldn't it, you? Because I know Jesus Christ is going to keep his word. And yet, sadly this morning, prophetic preaching and teaching is not in vogue today. What I'm doing right now is being ignored. It is being ridiculed. It's even being spiritualized away 
in so many quarters. And I'm not the only one to say that. You can read many, many magazines and papers and books today, and they all agree what in the world has happened to prophetic preaching. It would seem as we get nearer the end of the age, and nobody could dispute that we're nearer than the people previous. If we're nearer the end of the age, doesn't it seem like we would be thinking about this, talking about this, being instructed on this, preaching and teaching about the Lord's return more than ever? But we're not. In fact, there is a dearth of prophetic teaching and preaching across the spectrum of evangelical Christianity in conservative quarters today, uh, so much so that it's astonishing to me. You can go for weeks and months and never hear of uh, prophecy in, in so, so many places that claim to be, uh, in fact, conservative in their theology. Prophecy is ignored. In many places, it's just rarely ever mentioned in a, in a pulpit. You can go to church for months, even for years sometimes, and you will not hear sermons on the second coming of Christ, on the rapture, on the tribulation period, about the Antichrist, about what's going to be happening at the end of time. It not only is ignored, it's spiritualized. You see, listen to me, because as a member of this church, I want you to truly understand this. We believe we take a literal interpretation of the Scripture. The way that I say that sometimes in plain vernacular is if common sense makes good sense, then seek no other sense. The Word of God means what it says. When I pull up to a stop sign and there's a big red disc there and it says S-T-O-P, I don't need a dictionary to interpret that for me. I don't need a preacher to tell me what that means. I take the literal sense. In fact, one time I eased through one of those. And I said to the man who pulled me over who was wearing all black, and he wasn't a priest either, I'll tell you. And he said to me, Reverend. And I said, oh, no, he knew me. You didn't stop. I said, oh, yeah, I did. I slowed down. I, no, it says stop. You see, he took the literal interpretation. I took the symbolic one, right? And that's what people are doing to God's Word. They kind of read into it what they want it to say sometimes. Well, I'll tell you what God's Word means. Before you start trying to interpret it, it means what it says. And when common sense makes good sense, don't seek other sense. I read... From Zechariah chapter 14, a well-known theologian's account. And he spiritualized the text. And what I mean by spiritualizing, he, he reads into it his own interpretation. He said Jesus came down to the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives split in Zechariah 14. And he said that represents that Jesus Christ coming into the heart of a person, and their heart represents the mountain, and the heart opens up, and Jesus Christ's love flows in, and then they're the king, he's the king of that heart. Well, that's not what the Bible says. I mean, where do you get that? That's, it's like childhood fantasy. It's attributing to something what you want or hope, perhaps, that it means. The Bible says that the Lord is coming back, that His feet will stand one day on the Mount of Olives, and that a great earthquake will split that mountain, and then that after He deals with the enemies of God 
that he will assume his rightful kingship over the universe and over the entire earth. So we don't spiritualize prophecy. When we do that, we negate its impact. Sadly, prophetic preaching is ignored. It's spiritualized, and it's even ridiculed. Second Peter chapter 3, and verse 3 and 4, it says, In the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffers, those who ridicule, those who mock it. I hope we don't have any today watching on television or sitting here in the auditorium. I hope there's not anybody who ridicules it. Ah, there's that old leather lungs preacher talking about Jesus is coming back. They've been talking about Jesus coming back for hundreds of years, and he ain't come back. I don't believe that stuff. That's a scoffer. He mocks at it. He ridicules it. He holds the second coming of Christ in derision. He thinks that we're fanatical, in fact, if we look for the second coming of Christ. And so scoffers will come. Well, that verse, 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4, it says that the scoffer himself is a sign of the coming of the Lord. The argument is, by the scoffer, things have always been like this. Look up here. Read my lips. Things have not always been like they are. I'll give you one word that will tell you that things have not always been like they are this morning. That word is nuclear. Until World War II, there had never been an atom divided in the explosion that followed. And at Hiroshima, In Nagasaki, we saw what one very, very small nuclear device could in fact do. And the world has never been the same since. And now, more and more, they proliferate. And more and more, there are people around the globe who have control of these horrific weapons. No, things are not like they have always been. We hold it in our hand right now the power to, in fact, destroy all or most of our world. And it's being held by people like Kim over in Korea who are virtually madmen. We don't even know who holds it all. We know that in Iran they hold it. And the Ayatollahs over there pull the crowds together who shout death to America. No, no. Things are not like they've always been. And even if they were, it wouldn't matter because it also says in that same passage that a thousand years is to the Lord like one day. So you see, God doesn't measure time like I do. He doesn't wear a Timex or even a Rolex. He has his own clock, his own way of keeping time. And a thousand years to him, like a day, God is in no hurry because God is eternal. And he's not under any time pressure. There's another thing that's killing prophecy in our evangelical churches. And it's the social justice movement moving in to evangelical Christianity. By that, I mean the social justice movement. I mean, we're increasingly hearing about our responsibility as Christians to restore God's creation and understand what the dominion mandate was about in the first chapter, second chapter of Genesis. I understand that well. 
But I want to tell you something. The role of the church of Jesus Christ is not to solve all the political or social or economic or ecological problems in the country today. It's not our role. Now, this church does a lot of activities that try to make our community and our state a better place to live. But I want to tell you, that's way down the priority list. It's not the main thing we do here, ladies and gentlemen. And if everybody here was a political activist, and everybody here was an environmental activist, and if everybody here was a, some sort of a social justice warrior, I'm going to tell you what, we would absolutely collapse and fail. That's not who we are and what we're about. You can't show me one passage in the Scripture that would make that on the par with the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. No. The role of the church is he gave us this task, not of conquering the world for Christ. He gave us the task to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to stand for righteousness. And yes, we do a lot of those things. We help a lot of poor people. We help a lot of mission work. Uh, we, we help a lot of homeless people. But I want to tell you something. God did not call the Florence Baptist Temple to try to make South Carolina a better place to go to hell from. He called us to take the gospel to every single creature and to disciple those people after they have come to faith in Jesus Christ. So more than one-fourth of your Bible's prophecy, more than a fourth of it, that would indicate that it is very, very important that you understand the prophetic word. Number two this morning, fulfilled prophecy is evidence of the accuracy and the trustworthiness of your Bible. Fulfilled prophecy it produces abundant evidence of the accuracy and trustworthiness of the Scripture. You see, the Bible is the only sacred book in the world that even contains prophecy. If you study the literature, the books, the sacred books, so-called, of the other world religions, none of them have any words of prophecy in them. The Bible is unique. It is the only book that deals with prophetic subject matter. If you look at the Hindu scriptures, the Hindu scriptures are called the Veda and the Bhagavad Gita. Probably nobody here has read them or has any interest in them, but if you were a Hindu, that would be your Bible. There's not one line of prophecy in any of the Hindu scriptures, I'm told. I haven't read them truthfully. The Quran is the sacred book of Islam. There's not a single prophetic, futuristic word in the Quran. It's how to live your life. It's the beliefs of Muhammad the prophet. It has nothing to do with foretelling future events. If you were a Buddhist, the Tripitaka, the Diamond Sutra, and the canonical text, which I have not read, but they do not have, according to the scholars, any prophetic word in them. And yet our Bible, full, 1,825 mentions of the second coming in the Old Testament, 318 prophecies in the New Testament, one of 25 verses in the New Testament, 
318 mentions of prophetic events in the New Testament alone, you get the idea the Bible is absolutely unique. It's the only holy or sacred book that men look to on the planet that talks about the future. Let me show you a couple of them. Just, I, I, there, there are hundreds and hundreds, but just turn with me to Ezekiel. To me, if there, when people want me to show them a fulfilled prophecy, I always just flip it over to Ezekiel chapter 36. And to me, this one is just absolutely overwhelming. You just, it boggles your mind. Ezekiel chapter 36. And Ezekiel's prophesying about the, the land of Israel, of course. Now, here's the thing. To, uh, look up here and look at your Bible both at the same time, okay? Can you do that? <laughs> okay. Ezekiel is a captive down in Babylon. He's been carried away a thousand miles away from home. In fact, this past Wednesday night, we looked at the book of Ezekiel, and I gave you the background. Ezekiel is a prophet far from home, captive, a slave in the Babylonian empire. What hope do you think these people ever had of seeing their nation regathered? Nil, none. But look in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 24. He prophesies, I will take you, meaning the nation, from among the heathen. I will gather you out of all countries, not just Babylon. You see, they were just in Babylon at that time. So this is not a prophecy about coming home from Babylon. This is a prophecy about a later time when God will bring the Jews from all countries. Circle all. And I will bring you unto your own land. And in 1948, that prophecy was fulfilled. From all over the world, the Jews began to come home to Israel. They came on old broken-down tankers. Some few flew in. Some even walked across most of Europe to be able to get back to the Holy Land. And it was only about a couple of million of them in the country. If you go to Israel today, there's over eight and a half, close to nine million Jews. They've come from everywhere in the world, from Russia, from America, from all of Europe, from Latin America, from Asia, wherever there are Jews on this earth. They've gone home exactly in fulfillment of that prophecy. Then I want you to slip over to another one. It's Zechariah, Z-E-C-H, Zechariah. Turn over there, page 964, okay? Zechariah, and I want you to turn to chapter 9 because I can show you. Now, I told you there are 109 specific prophecies of Jesus' first coming, 109 specific, different, definite prophecies of Jesus' first coming. Now, this was written about 500, 550 years before the Lord Jesus Christ is born. But I'll show you the accuracy and the trustworthiness of your Bible in prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, 550 years before he's born, verse 9 says, Your king cometh unto you. He is just and having salvation, lowly or humble, and riding upon an ass, upon a colt, 
the foal of an ass. 550 years prior to him actually doing that, it not only said he would enter Jerusalem, it told that he would be riding on a little donkey. Go down to verse 12 of chapter 11. Chapter 11 and verse 12. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. 550 years before Jesus Christ came, it gave the price of his betrayal. Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 13. And the Lord said to me, cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. It even tells where this happened. Do you remember when Judas brought the blood money back to the temple and gave it to the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests? He said, I don't want this money that I got for betraying him. And then he went out and hung himself. And they said, what are we going to use this money for? This is blood money. This is dirty money. And they bought a field called the potter's field to bury the transient people, the people who had no means to provide a burial space for themselves. How did, how did Zechariah know to write that down? Does that not just boggle your mind? Does that not just astound you that all these details, he'll come riding on a donkey, he will be betrayed, he'll be sold for 30 pieces of silver, the money will be used to purchase a potter's field. Look in chapter 13 and verse 6. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire about the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf. They shall devour all the people. No, I'm reading the wrong verse here. Six. Uh, I'm reading the one that says about uh, be wounded in the house of my friends. It's in, okay, verse 10. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him. They'll look on him whom they have pierced. It even described the manner of his death, his feet, his hands pierced, his side pierced. Death came to him because he was pierced, because he bled out. And the manner of his death. You see, ladies and gentlemen, you cannot believe your Bible. You can't believe the Bible and not believe the prophetic scripture. The Bible accurately forecasts and tells us what the future will be like in hundreds of different places, more than a fourth of your Bible is prophetic. Fulfilled prophecy is evidence of his trustworthiness. And lastly, preaching and teaching prophecy has great practical value. I've heard even preachers say, well, I don't do much prophetic preaching. It's not very practical. People don't like it. It's theoretical. It's pie in the sky, Bill. Why would I want to waste my time doing that? Oh, I think it has great, great practical value. First of all, it gives us insight into our times and world events. I'd hate to be an unsaved man, a biblically illiterate person this morning and knew nothing about what the Bible says is going to be happening. And watching this blur of events on television and on my computer, reading it in the papers and the magazines and so on, and have no understanding of it at all. Not to be boastful, but 
Thank God we know what's happening. We can see the hand of God in the events that surround us in our life. And so I see, I read even secular people talking about the moral breakdown in America. About 50 people were shot this weekend in Chicago. What comes to my mind as a prophetic scholar, student, what comes to my mind is in the days of Noah, it was violent and there was more moral deprivation. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be. And I look at violence, moral depravity, and a dozen other signs that I don't have time to go into. I read my paper. I see little Israel surrounded. I've been watching this my whole ministry now, my whole life. I've been hearing prophetic preachers and teachers and reading prophetic material and hearing about Israel and its importance that that God's time clock is Israel. If you want to know what God is doing, you don't look to the UN. You don't look to the US. You look to Israel. Israel. In 1948, that star of David flag went up in Israel. The Jews had come home after 2,000 years. They're back in the Holy Land, the promised land, the land given to them to, uh, through their father Abraham. And they've been there, and they've fought a little handful of people against 300 million people surrounding them that hate them and are sworn to their destruction. And yet they survive. In fact, they're stronger than they've ever been. I understand that because I understand biblical prophecy. The study of prophecy has raised my awareness of the trend toward globalism. They started the UN after World War II. They were going to bring peace to the world. Well, we know how successful the UN is. We don't need to waste much time there. And then we saw this trend toward globalism. We saw it really begin to accelerate under Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon. And it continued to accelerate under Jimmy Carter and Ford and right on down through. Even under President Reagan, the trend toward globalism, the world becoming one, giving over our sovereignty and our power. And this is not meant to be a political statement but I, I, I feel I need to say it. You know what I think one of the roles of Donald Trump has been? Whether you like him or hate him, doesn't matter to me. But the role of Donald Trump is, he said, America first. And you know what he said, did? He slowed down the trend toward globalism. We know the Bible. We know one day there's a Superman coming. We know the whole world is going to worship him. He's going to take over the military, economic, political, religio, religio systems of the whole universe. And people are going to bow down and worship him. And he's going to be Satan personified. And he's mentioned in the New Testament more times than any other character except the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that his goal is to bring the world together to worship him. And for a brief time, America has taken a little bit of a turn. And to that I say, praise God. 
I'm not a globalist. I love my country. I don't believe globalism fits into the, the plan for my life that I certainly want. I'll tell you something else prophecy does. It gives incentive to you and me to live a godly life. People who don't expect the Lord to return don't live godly lives. Well, I got plenty of time. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 in your Bible, and I won't turn there, but write it down maybe. He that hath this hope in himself, it purifies him, the Bible says. He that hath this hope purifieth himself even as he is pure. If I live, if I believe that Jesus Christ is going to come imminently at any moment, it will directly affect my lifestyle. There are a lot of things I don't want to be caught doing if Jesus Christ could come. It purifies my life to live in anticipation and expectation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said, I try to live as though Jesus died yesterday. He arose this morning, and he's coming back tomorrow. Well, what a way to live. I try to live like Jesus died yesterday. He arose today, and he's coming back tomorrow. It gives an incentive for purity of life. Number three, it gives urgency to doing the Lord's work urgency to the Lord's work. Boy, if there's any one thing that you know is happening today, it's the complacency, the lack of urgency about the Lord's work among the Lord's people. So many Christians live like, we've got forever to do this. We don't have to make any sacrifices or do anything to inconvenience ourselves to do the Lord's work. We do it when we get around to it. Billy Graham said, not to, in fact, he wrote this not long before he died. Quote, in a declining culture, one of its characteristic, characteristics is that ordinary people are unaware of what is happening. Only those who know and can read the signs of decadence are posing the questions that as, as of yet have no answers. Mr. Average Man is comfortable in his complacency and unconcerned about world events. He's not asking any questions because his affluence has given him a false sense of security. This is both his trouble and his tragedy. Modern man has become a spectator of world events observing on his television screen without ever becoming involved. He watches the ominous events of our times pass before his eyes while he sips his beer in a comfortable chair. He does not seem to realize what is really happening to him. He does not understand that his world is on fire and he is about to be burned up with it. End of quote. If you believe the prophecies of the Bible, you will be urgent about doing the Lord's work. And lastly, in number four, we who know prophecy believe that we're living on the threshold 
of a seven-year period called the Great Tribulation when God will pour out his wrath on the world. We think the tribulation is way out there somewhere. The next event on God's calendar, I believe, is the rapture. The rapture will happen, and then shortly thereafter, we don't know exactly, the Bible's not definite, but the tribulation period will begin. Seven years when God will judge this earth. He will pour out his wrath upon the planet for her rebellion and hatred and evil that she's practiced for the centuries. You don't want to be here. You want to be in that group that was taken out in the rapture of the church. And you see, God has made a way of escape for people. And that's why we must be urgent in what we do, ladies and gentlemen. The gospel is the most important message that a human being has ever been called on to deliver. And we believe its acceptance or its rejection has eternal consequences. We believe that man is separated from God. Every single human being is separated from God by his or her sins and are doomed unless they're forgiven and reconciled to Almighty God. But God has made a way of escape through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he sent. And our attitude absolutely must be one of urgency. We must get the gospel to every creature, and we must get it to them as often as we can. We must get it to them in as many ways as we can deliver it till they finally hear it. And someday the last soul will be saved, and the rapture will occur, and you'll be glad for every door you knocked, every track you gave out, every witness that you ever made, every effort you ever made for the Lord's work, you'll thank God through eternity that you were able to participate in that. Titus chapter 3, or chapter 2 rather, in verse 13 says, looking for that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The blessed hope, it calls it. You see, The prophecies are not harbingers of doom that keep me in fear. The prophecies are signs of my redemption. And my redemption may be so very, very near today. We'll never set a date. The Bible says don't do that. We'll never set a time. We don't know the day or the hour. But we do know this, that when our Lord comes, we will be redeemed. We know that our eternal destiny will be changed from this earth and this planet to be with him where eye hath not seen and ear hath not heard has never entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for us. It's going to be wonderful, I'll tell you that. So we don't live in fear of his coming We live in anticipation of his coming. 138 years ago, a famous French scientist said, soon man will discover the secret of the atom. And when science reaches that stage, 
God will come down to earth with his big ring of keys, and he will say to humanity, gentlemen, it's closing time. Ladies and gentlemen, I think closing time could be in our lifetime. Let's live like we believe that. Amen? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.